You know, there's one occasion when we brought our children back to Australia while we were working in Papua New Guinea, they were only fairly young at the time, where we had a little bit of fun. We had, uh, with our, our son Josh, been watching a little bit of Star Wars on video. I don't know if you remember videos, we used to have those. And uh, so we had been in this kind of environment talking a little bit about that stuff. And we went to a shopping centre here in Australia. And of course, shopping centres in Australia are very fancy by comparison to what we were used to in that context. Uh, shopping centres here had automatically opening and closing doors. But of course, our children weren't familiar with those. They hadn't, um, hadn't remembered those from the time when they were here as really small children. And so I thought, here's an opportunity for a little bit of fun. And as we approached the shopping centre, I can't remember where it was, but I said to Josh, watch me use the force to open the door. And he's kind of, yeah, right, sure, whatever you say, Dad. And as we approached and we got within range of the sensor that I knew would open the door, I said, watch this, I'm going to use the force. And with my arms waved and magically the doors open and this look of incredulity crossed his face, trying to figure out how did he do that? He knew there was a trick there somewhere because there's no such thing as as magic or using the force kind of stuff. But nevertheless, the doors had opened. And of course, in time, he worked that out. The automatic doors were an exciting kind of an innovation. And I remember even as a child too, visiting a very new shopping centre in the suburb just nearby us where they'd built one of the early Kmart stores. It had automatic doors too that were triggered by a, a pressure plate on the floor. You might remember they had a sort of a black mat or something, I think. And if you stood on the mat, the door would open. If you stood off the mat, the door would close. And of course, as kids, we'd be on the mat and off the mat and on the mat and off the mat time and time again, just watching the doors go crazy and the people inside go crazier, probably. It actually, those memories came back to me as I was reading through the passage that we're looking at today, Acts chapter 12. Because in chapter 10, as Peter, and there's a picture here that we might be able to throw up on the screen for you, as Peter was imprisoned behind iron bars, uh, his release facilitated as it was by an angel uh, involved the doors opening automatically. Uh, the scripture says they opened on their own by themselves. And um, it kind of reminded me of those stories of doors that opened automatically. I don't believe that Peter's prison doors were activated by an electronic sensor or by a pressure plate under the floor, but by none other than uh, an angel of the Lord who did that. Well, Acts chapter 12 is a really significant chapter in the scope of the book of Acts. As we have been working our way through this book, uh, we've seen the church growing. We've seen the kingdom of God moving outward in concentric rings from Jerusalem through to Samaria to Ethiopia when Philip encountered the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, Paul, who uh, took the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter and Cornelius, a revelation for Peter in terms of his thinking about Gentile people and what was clean and what was not clean. And even uh, last week, as we looked at the passage there from chapter 11, verse 19 through to 30, the church in Antioch and this great crowd of people who became followers of Christ in that moment. 
Chapter 12, though, is, um, is a different um, chapter, at least at the start. It has a very discordant ring to it in, the term, in terms of the flow of this book. There's a dark cloud that is introduced here in this chapter, a roadblock, a setback, a grave crisis, if you like, in the life of the young church. It, it is a chapter that starts with some dark clouds. Um, it uh, contrasts, this chapter contrasts the despotic character and uh, power of Herod and the saving power of Christ and the triumph of the church and we're going to have a look at that today. It's Acts, Acts chapter 12, we'll read through the passage and then work our way through making some observations as we go. From verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up! he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they'd walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came and answered the door. When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had after Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He'd been quarrelling with the people of Tyre and Sidon 
Now they joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to flourish. Well, Luke is an exceptionally competent historian, but for reasons only he will ever know, he is unusually vague about when exactly the events that he's just described here in chapter 12 took place. He simply says that at uh, the time Herod, Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great and the nephew of Antipas, who was the Herod who was party to the trial of Jesus, at this time, whenever it was, Herod had some who belonged to the church arrested with the intention of persecuting them. In James's case, putting him to death. As uh, we're told here in this passage, James was put to death by the sword, which is a rather unfortunate but nevertheless accurate um, uh, outcome of a prediction that Jesus made back in Mark chapter 10 when James and John were asking for some special consideration. Uh, Jesus said to them, you will both suffer for your faith and that's what happened. James, as we see here, was put to death and John, we know, was exiled for his faith. And when Herod saw how much this execution of James pleased the Jews, because Herod was the consummate politician, he would put his finger up and see which way the winds of public opinion were blowing. He thought, this is good, I've become more popular because of this action. And so he had Peter arrested and uh, thrown in jail with the intention, no doubt with the intention, that he would execute Peter as well. However... What we do know from this passage is that it was the time of the Passover. It was the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And under Jewish law, it was illegal to conduct a trial or pronounce sentence during that time. And so Peter languished in jail. Well, Luke's description of Peter's condition in prison is quite intentional for in in a very real sense, it communicates to us the power of Rome. He was guarded by four squads of four soldiers, one man guarded by 16. That's quite incredible. They guarded him day and night, probably taking it in shifts. He was locked behind steel gates. He was awaiting uh, trial and execution. And the question that Luke invites us to ask in that space is, what can a small bunch of Christians do in that context. Well, we're told uh, by Luke that while Peter was kept in prison, the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now, the language that sits behind that statement is quite important because the word earnestly there means stretched out. In a sense, the church was stretched out praying for Peter. It gives this sense of a wholehearted, earnest um, wrestling in prayer, pleading. In fact, it's actually the same word that Luke uses to describe the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane. A prayer of being stretched out, earnestly pleading with God. 
And I guess one of the applications that would typically be made of this passage, and I'm sure uh, you would have heard this application if you've looked at this passage or heard a message on this passage before, is, uh, is this connection between earnest prayer in the church and the deliverance of Peter and so an encouragement to pray earnestly, to be diligent, to pray without ceasing. You know, lots of encouragement in that uh, and, and see the outcomes. And it kind of fits nicely, doesn't it, with the way that we want to think about prayer. We want to, and certainly, you know, church leaders or pastors at least will encourage their churches to be earnest in prayer. Uh, we think that that would be good for our faith because we will see outcomes and it'll be good for our witness too because as we pray earnestly for something and as God answers our prayer, people will say, wow, look at that, look at what's going on. But here's something kind of interesting to reflect on in this space. One of the things that this passage does is actually put the story of James and his execution right beside the story of Peter and his release and we have to make sense of both. You see where I'm going with this? We have to be able to explain why it is that James doesn't survive and Peter does in this space. Both have to fit somehow under the sweep of God's sovereign control and providence, his, his authority over circumstance. And we can't say that James lost his life because the church wasn't praying hard for him. We don't know what was going on there. We can't say that James lost his life because he, uh, he didn't have enough faith. We have no idea. That would be quite judgmental for us to say something like that. We don't know what was going on. It's tempting to do that. It's tempting to say, here's the reason James was executed and Peter wasn't. It was because James, uh, the church failed to pray for him or James uh, didn't appropriate enough faith or whatever, whereas Peter did it. It would be nice to do that. And the temptation to do that is strong. And it sort of has, I think, its root in our desire to control God. It's this kind of idea that if we go through the right traditions or the right motions or the right actions or the right formulas, then God will respond to us. And there is nothing wrong whatsoever with praying earnestly. Jesus provided a model of that. But if we start then to think, if we do this, then that, we have a problem. We need to be able to uh, answer that question. One of the helpful ways that I think uh, there is for us to think about prayer is this prayer is not so much about asking God to do what we want but submitting to the authority of God and to God's will. If we go back to that prayer of Jesus in the garden that I spoke about just a moment ago uh, we see this dynamic at work. Jesus was praying earnestly, he was stretched out in prayer and he was praying, Lord, if it's your will, take this cup from me. I can hear those words. Please, I do not want to do this. I don't want to go through this. And yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prayed, uh, petitioning God for his needs and provided a model for us to do that. But ultimately, God's call to us is to remain faithful no matter what the outcome might be to our prayers. Back in Daniel, actually, we have another example in the words of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who articulated this challenge to be faithful in the face of crisis. They said these words, 
to Nebuchadnezzar. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. No matter what the outcome to their prayer, whatever the outcome of their desires, they affirm their desire to be obedience to God. And there's a starting point for us in prayer. Pray earnestly by all means. Petition God. Beat on the doors of heaven. Absolutely, we're encouraged to do that. Pray without ceasing, uh, but always willing and ready to submit to the will of God. Well, in Luke, uh, sorry, in uh, chapter 12, verse 6, Luke gives us a snapshot of what was going on while the church was praying. The night before the trial, uh, Peter was surrounded by guards. He was chained to some. He was watched over by others. He was experiencing a deep sense of anxiety about what was likely to transpire in the morning. And that is what I would expect the text to say, but that's not what the text says, is it? Luke says Peter was asleep. Peter was asleep? Peter could not have known what was going to happen. He couldn't have known an angel was going to appear and and release him. His best guess in this context would have been a trial and execution. We've already seen a precedent set for that in James. And yet here he is asleep. What's going on with this guy? From a human point of view, his options are pretty limited. And yet here is an example of a guy whose hope whose confidence was in God, who did not fear what Herod or the authorities might throw at him, resting in the knowledge that God was in control, able to relax into God's care even in that space. It's the same attitude that we see in Paul and Silas later on in this book of Acts. They were able to sing and pray in prison. We'll come to this story in just a few weeks. And it's not some kind of cavalier attitude, you know, devil may care kind of thing. And nor is it a presumptuousness that just assumes that God will do what we want, not by a long stretch. This kind of rest is actually born from a deep-seated confidence that God knows best and God is in control and God will always do what is right. Over the years I've spoken to a lot of people about this and have experienced this myself. You know, there's stuff that goes on in life all the time, crises that we face, circumstances that we wonder what's going to happen. Even simple things like making decisions about buying a house. Well, it's not simple, it's a fairly big one. Uh, You know, life-changing transitions and decisions. There's a rest that we can experience as Christians when we place our trust in God, knowing that God has got this no matter what it is, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how convoluted it might be, no matter how painful it might be in the space that you're in, uh, we're able to rest in God. And then Luke tells us, as Peter was sleeping, an angel of the Lord appeared. Rather curiously, throughout the history of the church, commentators have tried to explain this away as anything but an angelic appearance. In fact, uh, some would say, well, the word angel quite literally is translated as messenger. And so in Revelation, for example, 
Jesus writes to the angel of the church in Laodicea or wherever. And uh, that word literally does mean messenger. It's not a, not a, a divine angelic uh, messenger. And so some commentators have said, well, what happened here was Peter was asleep, the guards were asleep, some human person kind of sashayed into the prison uh, through the locked gate without arousing suspicion, flicked on uh, lights, uh, I'm not sure how, uh, commanded Peter to get up, gave him a bit of a punch in the side, said, come on, lazy bones, up you get. Uh, Managed to unshackle his wrists, he was um, chained, remember, with two chains, of course, and then together they tiptoed out. You can sort of picture the scene, can't you? Making sure they didn't accidentally trip over one of the legs of the guards. And then hived off uh, as Peter was released. An amazing story and yet totally unbelievable. Luke won't have any of this. In fact, Luke has a very strong, uh, a strong theology of angels. His, what we call angelology, his understanding of angels as God's messengers, very strong through his gospel and here in Acts. And Luke wants us to understand that what happened in this space was not just some kind of um, fortuitous human intervention, it was actually God at work in this space. The kind of intervention that um, Luke was familiar with in both the birth and the death of Christ where angels appeared. While this was going on, we know that uh, the church was meeting in prayer at Mary's house. And that's kind of interesting. I was thinking about this through the week too. Mary, Mary must have been a woman of some means, or at least from a family of some means, because the house was large enough to have a courtyard. They were possibly a, possibly a double-storey house. It was a big house. And we know this because we're told in the text that there was a large gathering taking place in this house and it was a house wealthy enough to have domestic servants and it's one of the domestic staff who will be forever remembered for her unfortunate response when Peter rocked up and knocked on the door. Now I don't know about you but have you ever done anything and I'm pretty confident we all have uh, you know some sort of action whether an action in a moment just something you didn't think about or something you might have said something that you did uh, where forever after your friends, your, your circle of friendship, your uh, colleagues or whoever um, kind of hark back and say, oh, you remember the time you did da-da-da-da-da? Or do you remember when you said, oh, yes, we, that was so funny? Well, we have one of those moments here in this text. Poor Rhoda. She must have been teased. She must have been teased because the story of her answering the knocking and, and hearing Peter's voice, it was, it was typical in these days for a person to come and knock on the door and call out. It was not unusual for the person to call out, middle of the night, mind you. This story of her going to the door in response to the knocking, hearing Peter's voice becoming so excited that she totally failed to open the door and ran back has been retold and here it is. Luke considered it significant enough to record it even here in his account. She must have been terribly embarrassed and possibly maligned and I think unfairly so. And I say that because although her actions were performed in a moment of, uh, what's the word, uh, a moment of crisis, not even that's not the right, not, not the right description, 
Um, I'd have to pull out my thesaurus for the right one. But in a moment of exuberance, uh, she just acted and didn't do what she was supposed to do. That's, uh, that's forgivable. What's kind of strange though in this case is she went back to the church who were praying and she said, Peter's at the door and what did they say? Girl, you're out of your mind. They actually accused her of being mentally deficient. Who should eat humble pie in this situation? The girl who went to the door and in her excitement and exuberance forgot to actually unlatch the door or the whole gathered church who were in that moment praying for the release of Peter who said, oh no, that's not possible. You know, we're asking God for this. It can't be possible that Peter's actually there. You see the problem? It actually raises some interesting questions for us about what the church was earnestly praying for. Were they praying for his release or were they praying that he would remain faithful under trial? Were they praying for his release but secretly doubting in their hearts that God could actually do that? Because the very thing that they were praying for happened and yet they, they didn't believe that it could have happened. Without doubt they were surprised by the nature of and the timing with which God answered their prayers and in the process I suspect that the church gathered there learnt a lesson that Paul uh, highlighted for the Ephesian church in uh, Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 where he says God can do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. When we come to verses 18 to 19 uh, the account here of what happened subsequent to Peter's escape in the morning there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. I can imagine that. Can you, can you imagine the commotion? That's a great word. It would have just been a terrible moment. But I've got to tell you, um, this troubles me, these verses. There's something here that, um, that we need some time and we're not going to be able to do that today. We need to kind of wrestle with. Here's the thing that troubles me about these verses. Not that they're here. It's an accurate reflection of what happened. But this, despite their very best efforts to guard Peter, Peter had escaped. Apparently what had happened was that these guards were put into some kind of divinely induced coma. They had, they had become so sleepy that, that uh, they just heard nothing and in some senses, they were innocent of any crime. You see, under Roman law, if a jailer allowed a prisoner to escape, the law prescribed that the jailer should suffer the consequences that were previously due the prisoner. And so in Peter's case, he was to be executed. And so the guards who had failed to secure him, um, they were executed. And this is where I find the passage just a little bit hard to kind of wrestle with because the guards, or at least four of them, lost their lives through no fault of their own. Indeed, if they had indeed been in a deep sleep induced by God, then wouldn't it appear that God is somehow implicated in their deaths? Now, I'm kind of throwing these questions around because these are sometimes the kinds of questions that people put out there to Christians to try and trip up faith. You know, if God is a loving God and a merciful God, why would he do something like that? Why would he allow this? Why would he allow that? Those are the typical sort of questions 
that um, that people will ask to try and raise uh, what really are straw men in terms of an argument, but um, to trip Christians up. And it would be kind of interesting if we had time today to examine that question, is God somehow implicated in the death of these innocent men? Now, of course, we don't know the status of their hearts. We don't know uh, whether they had acted in a particularly cruel manner towards Peter or any of those details. And uh, we don't have the time today to unpack that question. We might need to do that uh, some other time. But we can say that they died through no fault of their own and that illustrates again the really despotic nature of Herod, a nature which is described through to the end of this chapter too in his rather unfortunate and in some senses untimely death. Luke says in this passage that uh, he had been quarrelling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. He went up to uh, Tyre. He had uh, uh, an appointment up there. The Jewish historian Josephus actually helps fill out some of the details here. Herod went up to Tyre apparently, uh, was sitting on a platform. He was dressed in his finest robes, which Josephus tells us were sewn through, integrated into the robes was silver. And so when the sun shone on Herod's robes, the people saw this shimmering kind of mirage-like image, if you like. And as Luke said, uh, they were overwhelmed and they cried out, uh, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Herod was indeed giving a public address. And uh, subsequent to that, and Josephus confirms pretty much what Luke tells us here, uh, Herod, suddenly stricken by extreme abdominal pain, and Luke simply says he was um, eaten by worms and died. And you might think to yourself, well, that's kind of a weird statement. Luke's you know, obviously demonstrating a particularly naive understanding of what happened to Herod. And yet it would appear to be closer to the truth than we might at first realise because it was not at all unusual in those days for intestinal worms to so inhabit a person that they could cause an obstruction. They would form themselves up into a tight ball inside the intestinal tract. I hope you're not having a lunch as I'm speaking about this, uh, that they would cause an obstruction which would cause intense, intense abdominal pain and ultimately, if it didn't naturally clear, then as was the case for Herod, uh, then death. Luke wants us to understand that Herod's death was very much linked to his appropriating praise as a god and not redirecting the praise to God. And so in a beautiful poetic summary to the story, Luke says that the church continued to grow. What a transition this has been from the start of the passage to the end of the passage. Across the breadth of this chapter, Luke paints a picture of a reversal of the church's fortune. At the start of the chapter, it was at this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. There's dark clouds have gathered over the church. Verse 24, but the word of God continued to increase and spread. At the beginning, we have Herod rampaging, arresting and persecuting the church. And at the end, it's Herod who was struck down and dies. At the start of the chapter, we have James dead, Peter in prison and Herod triumphing. 
And at the end of the chapter, we have Herod dead, Peter free and the church triumphing. There's the work of God in that space. And it's a reminder to us that tyrants of any ilk might for a time be permitted to have their way, even oppressing the church and hindering the advancement of the gospel, but that their tenure is always limited by God, that they will be allowed to go this far, but no further. Their empire will be broken down, their pride will be maligned and God will be victorious. What a great chapter this is for us to come to and be reminded of, uh, of God's work through his church, even in the context of persecution and pressure. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are God who has the past, the present and the future in your hands. God, we are challenged by Peter's calm assurance while in prison without the promise of release or life. Help us, we pray, to have the same confidence as Peter had that no matter what happens to us or with us or to us is always going to result in your glory. We're challenged by the earnest prayers of the church in this chapter. Our prayers, Lord, are often driven by crises or are long on requests and short on praise and worship. They're thrown in a moment when we have a second that we can spare for you. Father, help us today to know that our prayer our prayer that your kingdom come and will be done here on earth as it is in heaven is as vital now as it ever was and that our posture in prayer is to be earnest, guided by you and in tune with your will. Lord, we're challenged by the response of the church in this passage, a church which was praying for one thing but was surprised when you answered prayer. Lord, we thank you for the times where we've seen you answer our prayer. We thank you when we have seen dramatic and immediate answers, but we thank you too when you have said wait or you've said no or you've answered our prayers in other ways. And Lord, today we pray too for those who live under the authorities, under the people like Herod in our world today, tyrants and dictators whose rule is vice-like, whose purpose is to maintain power, who want to maintain control, to dominate to the detriment of others. Lord, we pray that you would sustain your church in places where it's persecuted, where Christians are in a minority, where laws and culture and community stand against those who simply want to follow Jesus. Protect them and sustain them, we pray. Give them a glimpse of your glory and your ultimate victory, we ask today, and for ourselves too, in Jesus' name. Amen.